Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Megan Tobias Neely about hedged out, inequality and insecurity on Wall Street. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you, Dave. Uh, this is, is a fantastic book. Uh, it's incredibly kind of well-timed and important given um, the continuing state of things in uh, the kind of uh, finance industry and, and around the sort of global economy. Um, and I guess it's a book that's kind of part of, of your broader academic agenda and, and, you know, things you've been working on for a long time. But I'm interested to start the conversation about the book with a quite kind of personal experience that comes quite early on. Um, I think maybe in, in the first couple of pages where you talk about having worked in a hedge fund and I'm really keen to know about that kind of personal experience, both in terms of um, how it added to or kind of shaped the book, but also actually as a way of kind of saying, what, what is a hedge fund? <laughs> what are we actually talking about? Yeah, and this is something I went back and forth on because as a scholar, especially doing um, qualitative research, you always want to foreground the people you study. But you also have to really share and disclose who you are and where you come to this. So that's why I, especially in the preface, I share a little bit about how I sort of happened into uh, working at a hedge fund um, and and what that how that shaped the the focus of the study. I graduated with a humanities degree in 2007 in Seattle, and I was applying to jobs. I knew I wanted to do a PhD, but I really wanted to get sort of research, you know, hands on. Um, research, data intensive research experience. And so I applied to all kinds of jobs and one popped up at a financial boutique. I had no idea what that was. And I went in and it was the first job I heard back from, you know, I applied to all kinds of nonprofits and things. And I go in and in the interview, they said, do you know what a hedge fund is? And I, I just didn't, I didn't want to lie. So I said, no. 
And they said, well, that's that's fine. We'll teach you. Um, you know, we'd rather have kind of critical thinkers who can question what we do rather than somebody who's trained in a particular way of doing research. So I got this job that was very entry level, like a research support position um, within this team at a it was at a large asset manager in their division that invests in like hedge funds, private equity firms, venture capital firms. And so I did research on the people they were investing in as kind of background research on them. I did all sorts of um, looking into their lives and what their career experience was, were, which really shaped what I thought about with the study, um, also following things like their audited financial statements. And what happened while I was working there is the financial crisis of 2008 happened. Um, and it just completely exposed me to a world um, of that impacts inequality in such an immense scale that I had previously no understanding with, even though I'd always been interested in studying inequality. Uh, but seeing the, the whole mortgage crisis, seeing the aftermath of the financial and the 2008 financial crisis for average people and the role of these financial leaps, then sparked this interest um, to go back to do my PhD to, to study the industry. What you said there is, is kind of fascinating in, in that sense of 2008 sort of revealing the you know the kind of the underside of, of how everything works and, and i think this book actually is, is is really in that space actually saying there's a story that things like hedge funds and you know financial managers um investors tell about how the industry works and then there's the kind of re- reality and i guess part of this is is framed really within a broader set of inequalities um so obviously you know there's as you've said with, with the um, kind of mortgage crisis in, in 2008, there's inequalities of wealth and, you know, who has money and who doesn't, who is precarious, who, who isn't. But interestingly, you try and tell a story of kind of class, race and gender inequalities in the industry. Um, and I'm fascinated to hear more about that, partially because it kind of goes against the story the industry tries to tell, but also because I, I guess it kind of relates quite directly to a range of different scholarship that's talking about inequality in the world today. Yeah, and I th- this is something that evolved with the course of the study. Uh, you know, it was something early on, just working, um, doing research on hedge funds, it was very quickly apparent who works at them and who runs them. I mean, you don't have to look up too many biographies of hedge fund managers to see a trend in terms of gender and race um, and elite pedigrees. Uh, so that was always something I knew about studying the industry. But initially, I sort of thought about it more of like, you know, how do people who do work that has this kind of impact on society, how do they justify it? Um, how do they make sense of it? And that I wasn't, and I wasn't entirely sure how this social inequality piece of it would fit into that. Um, and the study was really influenced by, you know, at the time Thomas Pickney's work was first coming out on the role of top incomes and driving, widening inequality. Uh, so that was something that was sort of a backdrop and Occupy Wall Street was happening um, that really called attention to these top incomes and how they are driven by a lack of oversight, you know, regulatory, taxation, um, other kind of forms of uh, government intervention that help to curb uh, the power and excess and resources of these kind of firms. And so, and then early on in the research, an industry study came out that found that 97% of hedge fund assets are managed by firms run entirely by white men. And so there's actually more hedge funds run by men named David than there are by women. And so that that just gives you a sense of how extremely, you know, lopsided this industry was. And so it, you know, piqued my interest into what's going on here. You know, how is we know about the role of things like uh, regulatory oversight, taxation, 
um, the the sort of opacity of what these people do and how that breeds an advantage that allows them to uh, demand these top incomes. But we don't know about this piece of the puzzle that has to do with social inequality. How is that also part um, the fact that it's so white men dominated, how is that part of this structure of, of accountability and of um, of being able to kind of wall themselves out uh, from the rest of society uh, in certain ways? Yeah, I mean, it, in some ways, it kind of reflects other um, elite industries that there's quite uh, good research on the kind of diversity problem um, of, of David's dominating things like the film industry uh, when compared to to women and, and and i guess the kind of the sense here is that um white masculinity and, and particularly kind of like what we call it kind of upper class or elite white masculinity is is the kind of central trope um in in hedge funds both you know kind of today and historically um and i'm fascinated by i guess kind of like why that is and, and why it is that these particular characteristics are so dominant um and, and you try and sort of introduce this um, at the start of the book and, and you talk about the way that um, you know even culturally how we think about and how we see um, the finance industry uh, in, in say media representations is dominated by a particular kind of elite white masculinity um, so why is that you know what is it about um, these demographic characteristics and I guess this particular um, slice of society this in some ways minority slice of society that is so kind of central to the hedge fund mm-hmm. yeah I think so one thing that came up um, that started kind of providing clues to the for this um, in my research and kept emerging in my field notes was how this industry you know people keep using kept using these terms um, for hedge fund managers like calling them chiefs or chieftains or um, the kings of their of their um, what they, what people called tribes. They described these hedge funds as sort of tribe-like or fraternity-like. And they kept using words um, also like cowboys, um, that they were sort of had a cowboy mentality, that they were anti-big um, finance in a lot of ways, which surprised me because you think they, you know, hedge funds are very much a product of big finance. Their um, investors are 60%, over 60% are actually institutional investors. So these are, you know, groups like large asset managers, pension funds, um, government wealth funds, endowments. And and so, but yet they have this very like libertarian mindset, um, this kind of cowboy mindset that they're different um, and that they're sort of, you know, working according to their own terms. And all of this is steeped with assumptions about masculinity and specifically whiteness um, and white masculinity. And so I was looking for those kind of cues, those cues kept kind of popping up. And then I kept wondering, well, what, you know, what is this indicative of? Because like you said, we know, you know, there's so much research on what the forces that prevent people from getting ahead in meritocratic, even meritocratic workplaces, like the, you know, the forces make it hard for women to get ahead on Wall Street or for racial and ethnic minority men um, or people from non-elite backgrounds. But we don't really know why like this particular group of white elite white men benefits more so than in other times and places where they've also had similar powers and privileges. Um, and so I noticed that a lot of those terms, when they were talking about those terms kind of tied to whiteness and masculinity, it was often when they were also talking about how much important things like trustworthy in the industry, um, kind of con- may- being able to manage risk and be a risk taker in controlled ways, um, how important loyalty and relationships were in terms of getting access to opportunities and the know-how of the industry. And so what I realized is that they you know, they had this sort of universal perception that their work was insecure because of the way the markets operate. 
And there is, you know, the average hedge fund only lasts five years. So there is a lot of turnover in the industry and they're small firms. And I began to notice that a lot of these discourses around kind of how whiteness and masculinity operate were specific, are specifically in response to that perception of insecurity and this need to kind of shore up like systems of stability within what they perceive as a as a insecure environment, even though they're very well off um, and have all kinds of safety nets, they still feel this need to really protect that um, and protect that access to resources. That kind of um, what we call it, like fear, um, is is really fascinating. Actually, it, it goes, I, I suppose, to the heart of both why people you know kind of found hedge funds or you know want to work in them but it also goes to the different routes people kind of take through careers in hedge funds and I'm, I'm really interested to know i guess the kind of the psychology of getting involved in the industry but particularly actually um what one thing the book you know tries to flag up is it's not just a kind of um a hiring industry actually there is a lot of founding a lot of you know individual um in most cases men who are like I will stake out on my own and, you know, start a hedge fund and, and precisely with those ideas about kind of managing risks and, you know, ruggedness and being a chief or, or whatever. So, so what's the kind of motivation there? Yeah, I think there's a number of motivations. It kind of depends on the paths people get to the industry um, and paths they take to starting their own hedge fund. And the, I think the most important piece with both access to the industry and starting a hedge fund has to do with having access to very elite networks with lots of money uh, to invest in them um, and to support them. So that was often, you know, some sort of prior connection to someone at a hedge fund was often what led them to a job in the industry or to know that it exists um, and that it's kind of an arena to work in. And generally people without connections were seen as more like vulnerable to risk in terms of bad, being exposed to really bad jobs in the industry, like using headhunters, was considered kind of a stig, like it was a, a source of stigma for a hedge fund, unless it was a really large one, because the idea was that it probably was a firm that something was going on that was wrong um, if they had to rely on on a head hunter as opposed to using their networks. So it this kind of captures how important these core elite networks are in the industry, and how they they funnel people into these jobs, but then also they provide the seed funding for. Um, for creating your own hedge fund. And I was amazed at how many people I interviewed who worked, you know, in, in like investment banking for a few years and then very rapidly were able to start their own hedge fund. Um, and it costs a lot of money to start a hedge fund. So, in, and often they would sort of portray themselves as the underdog or, you know, like as though they weren't in, connected in Northeast um, elite circles. But when I probed a little bit or did some background research on them, I'd often find these signs that they were from, you know, a, um, an upper class background in a different part of the country that they had connections to people with money in the business community in one way or another. Um, and so that was really the heart of who gets in and who succeeds. Um, and it's partly uh, just be, being act, having access to these elite networks. And then also this belief that though this is a really important place to be, <laughs> you know, uh, they often described how it's like, you feel like you're when you're thinking about public markets and investments on this scale that it gives you a sense of sort of like being a mastermind of the universe, or you know, like you're thinking about geopolitical events and businesses, and um, and so it's sort of like you know the they the way they describe it is sort of like the ivory tower of Wall Street, um, and and the fact that they can invest on a scale that actually lets them shape those markets and influence how they how they do. They can take so many stocks and um, in a particular 
position to um, influence the outcome. You mentioned um, trust earlier on, and, and and actually, you know, what you've just been saying there about the sort of the ivory tower of, of, of Wall Street is a fascinating example of this. I guess how this world gets kind of closed off. Um, and again, you know, your comments on headhunters are, are instructive. And, and one of the things that goes on, I guess, in, in the kind of middle of the book is is you start to tease out not so much kind of who gets in, and I think you've you know sort of articulated really clearly that the dominance of a particular social group and their connections and you know the kind of elite networks they, they need already but also who is kind of filtered out who doesn't get hired who is seen as not being a good fit for a hedge fund um, and when you kind of lay it all out it turns out you know there's a lot of sexism here you know there are things that we might say that's you know possibly pretty kind of racist certainly um, the kind of you know class or um social network kind of elements mean that we, we have a very exclusive set of, of hedge fund uh, managers and, and hedge fund workers, but it's all kind of framed with trust, people fitting, you know, people being able to perform um, people being kind of, yeah, you know, kind of good workers almost. So, so who doesn't fit these tropes and, and I guess kind of like, why are they um, constructed in this way? Yeah, so people uh, didn't fit in, in a number of ways. And this came up, you know, sometimes in sort of this coded language in during interviews or how people would talk about, um, like in, for job interviews or how they talk about evaluating people or their colleagues. So often it was like, yeah, it's very similar to Lauren Rivera's research on um, hiring at elite firms that they would talk about people who were a good fit and how it was just sort of like a sense of chemistry with them um, or a sense of like seeing that they were passionate about their work, which is a very... Um, class to kind of approach to work to be able to be passionate about it, but it and it came up that these designations of good fit often came up with from you know where they went to school, what kind of um, social activities they were involved in school. It came up with how they they sort of presented themselves, how they carried themselves, um, the sense of that whether or not people were engaged um, or could like that they could get along with each other. One man described how this was a guy who ran a hedge fund, sold it, made a lot of money, and then um, went and back and advised hedge fund clients at an investment bank. And he said, one advice he always gives them is, he's like, you got to think about it as you're going to spend more time with this person than your your wife. Uh, you know, what? who do you want to spend that much time with? And I think that captures so well how Hamathly works. It's like this perception, they're working so many hours. They're in such kind of tight quarters, in terms of um, how you know much they get to know each other and how much they're they're entrusting to one another, and so they they approach they you know use often these these familial metaphors to describe how you should vet who can come in and and work with you. And then the other th- one of the coded things that came up is they often described how you have to have like thick skin to work on these hedge fund trading floors. That it's this very you know, aggressive space, people, um, you know, display like they, there's a lot of cursing, sort of uh, emotional outbursts when the stock market goes awry. And that's part of like the bonding rituals. Um, in, and this is true across Wall Street. And so, but then they would describe how you have to have a thick skin in this context. And I often, when I probed of what that meant, it became very clear, you know, they'd say, well, people won't always talk in politically correct terms. There's a lot of um, language that's used that could be offensive. So, but you just have to you know, not, not take it that way. Um, and so it was very clear, like part of that environment, and sometimes they'd give explicit examples of the sort of language used, um, you know, things like sexist and racialized um, 
racist nicknames. Um, one woman was nicknamed the Scarlet Letter, for example. Um, they, but these were the these are the kind of, those were the coded language that indicated something was going on there that was particularly about who you know um, like who can develop a thick skin <laughs> is shaped by who fits in who is like everyone else in the group and won't be singled out by this kind of language and made to feel isolated or um, in in defense um, or the need to be in defense of themselves. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This gives rise to a, a really kind of clear, almost sort of like ideal type um, hedge fund worker. And, and maybe like we, we can discuss sort of three bits to this. Um, obviously, there's, you know, people who, as you've mentioned, have a kind of cultural fit um, with these institutions. And it turns out that cultural fit is code for probably being an elite origin white man. <laughs> um, but but also there, there are kind of fascinating stories and I guess kind of narratives that, that get told about like what having a passion for the job is um, and, you know, kind of managing risk is as well. So what are the sorts of, um, yeah, kind of ideal type attitudes in terms of having a passion for the job? And then what are the sorts of ideal type, maybe kind of um, safety nets that support um, risk taking for these workers? Great questions. And I think, um, you know, this gets into how the kind of the analysis of the book works, which is really that I'm looking at the intersection of whiteness and masculinity. And so what I tried to trace out was like, when, you know, I'd interview somebody who captured that sort of ideal hedge fund worker, this image who was often like a a risk taker, or, you know, they described themselves as the ideal as being somebody who's a risk taker, a control, like kind of a uh, measured or controlled savvy risk taker. Um, who, you know, was, um, had this like cowboy mentality and a passion for the work. And when I, they would describe this, you know, I'd look for if somebody who followed that norm in the industry, this elite white man norm, they would often describe it one way. You know, they'd say like, you have to really show that you're, you're invested in that or that you're interested. I mean, you can't just be in it for the money. You know, there was a lot of vetting out people who were believed to just be after the money, which is also something that benefits you know, elites, because they have that privilege of not having, if you're from a wealthy background, you you don't have to be motivated by money. Um, that's a, definitely a privilege. But so that was one way they did it. Um, another thing that came up then in these displays of passion was that it often had to do with, like I just said about the kind of behavior that's the norm on the trading floor um, or on the trading desk. And this come, stems from the norms for behavior that used to take place on the actual trading floor um, as this, these very aggressive places. And you'd, I would hear from, for example, a, a good example of like this kind of um, I, like solo operator who needs to take rests and really advocate for themselves. One theme that came up is like one man, Andrew, who's a white man with a law background, um, who was recruited to work in a technical part um, of a hedge fund in their just distressed trading unit. And he described how you really had to advocate for yourself and push hard in the negotiations, you know, when you uh, negotiate your pay, because otherwise he said it, quote, it looks like you, or you don't know your worth um, or you don't you know your value. And that's kind of a warning side to the person on the other side. 
if you don't think you're worth a lot. But then this woman, Sasha, who's a black woman from um, an immigrant background and had she was a first-generation college student, described how you know she found out that a white woman colleague earned three times her pay. So she tried to negotiate higher earnings and kind of call attention to that. And she stressed her labor market value. And then she received this pushback. And, and she said she was felt you know put into place and kind of know her role. Um, and it created so much tension that she eventually got pushed out of the firm. And so it's a good example of how this norm that works for Andrew, even though he doesn't have the credentials in finance, didn't work for Sasha, who did. She had um, a degree in finance. She went to a state school. Um, and so there's this double, double standard. And I had similar things come up with, uh, example, a black man named Math, who I call Matthew. Um, all these are pseudonyms. Who he's from this elite, very elite background. He went to, you know, he named even his like primary schools by name. They were <laughs> recognizable um, uh, elite elementary schools. When I looked them up. Um, he went to all kinds of, he went to boarding schools, Ivy League universities, and he would describe how when he engaged in those behaviors, those displays of passion on the trading desk, uh, people responded to him differently and would report him um, as being overly aggressive or threatening, even though he was just engaging in the same rituals that um, that elite white men can carry out every day. And for them, it's like a sign of being part of the in-group to to um, display those kind of activities and, and work in that way. So for him, it was a complete double standard, even though he had that elite background, just being black um, stigma, you know, made him subject to these um, racist interpretations of what he was doing. Yeah. I mean, the, the sense of kind of double standards runs right throughout the book. And, and, and I guess it is the, the distance between the idea of, you know, meritocracy, the idea of, you know, if you can make money, you're going to make it, you know, if you're, what would we say, kind of, you know, if you have that particular talent or set of skills, you're going to make it. And then the reality of, you know, there being really sort of obvious ways that people who aren't white elite origin men are kind of pushed out or at least um, have to, I suppose, kind of struggle and negotiate their positions um, much more um, than their co-workers or, or maybe their co uh, founders of hedge funds. I, I'm interested, I guess, in, in, to get a sense of um, how how that stuff is like negotiated, kind of ethically, um, both in in terms of um, how our dominant norm, you know, our um, elite white masculine uh, trope, thinks about their work and their kind of ethics towards their work, but also how some of the people who are on the kind of sharp end of what are, you know, subtle and sometimes not so subtle discriminatory practices um, kind of have motivation for their work as well. Yeah, that's like, uh, those are great questions. And I think, you know, I think it really comes down to, or back to this theme of meritocracy and this deep seated belief they have in meritocracy, because it's, it's what justifies this sense of superiority, you know, within finance, um, that they are uh, qualified and, um, you know, smarter than everyone else and have earned this position. And, and gender and, and race and the inequality in the industry really undermine that. I think a good example that captures this is how what, one of the things that came up in my recruiting when I would ask people to participate in the study you know, I'd say it was a study about inequality in hedge funds and um, gender and race. And they would say, you know, oh, yeah, gender gender is an issue. And and this was likely shaped by me being a white woman. But they, you know, would kind of be like, yeah, we, this is, you know, it's clear there's a problem. There's not enough women. 
which they'd quickly write off as a pipeline issue. So this went back to that theme of passion and interest. They would say, well, women just aren't interested in finance. You know, they're interested in shopping or whatever they, they, they'd say, things like that. Um, or they'd say, well, women, you know, uh, they once they become mothers, it just creates a problem. And so there were themes along gender that they could sort of write off the gender inequality without undermining meritocracy. Um, they could, you know, there, there were reasons they thought that this pipeline prevented women from get a, getting ahead, but it wasn't a sign that the their belief that the industry was meritocratic was wrong. But with race, I found that it more fundamentally undermined that belief in meritocracy. And so when when they would often say, "Oh no, race isn't an issue in the industry; it's merit," you know, it's a meritocracy, and they would say things like, "Well, numbers don't lie at hedge funds; it's all about the bottom line." Your numbers are your numbers, so it's it's a. They would even frame it as like an equilibrium or um, an equality producing force, because it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. If you if you do well, then you um, excel, is what they would say. And I think that for them, there it was harder to come up with those alternative explanations for why so few people of color were in the industry, and so that's why they were especially defensive around race. Um, but when I push a little bit and say, well. What about teamwork? You know, how do you evaluate people's contributions on teams, which is what you do, what happens until you're like leading your own portfolio or your own hedge fund? Then, then it's maybe more of a reflection of your leadership skills. But you know, these entry and mid-level positions, they're all contributing to one team, and so, and they would often say, "Well, yeah, I guess you know that is there. There, it's a little trickier. You know, <laughs> then, then it's about a subjective." Um, designation of whether you've contributed, how much you've contributed. And so they'd sort of acknowledge how that's one of the avenues in which these uh, biased perceptions of of who was a good contributor or a good teammate um, came in and affected how people were evaluated. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's fascinating, actually, because that runs throughout the book, th- this idea of sort of um, justifications for what counts as success. You know, you've got the big justification, which is, did you make money? But then actually there are loads of these kind of um, kind of rhetorical, but also, I guess, kind of practical strategies that really aren't really to do with about making money. They're to do with, are you one of us? Are you like us? You know, do you have this kind of fit with the people who are already successful? And I guess one of the things that, that happens right at the end of the book um, and one of the questions that I, I was kind of left with reading the book is how do you sort of change that? You know, is, is it possible to um to kind of get a shift um in these perceptions and then the associated um kind of practices you, you know did, did you get a sense both um when you were doing the field work and, and maybe actually in, in initial reactions to the book that it's being taken kind of seriously as oh we need to change things um or is it just an element of kind of we need a new rhetorical strategy because you know the distance between fact and meritocracy has been shown up to us yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a few themes here. One thing um, that came up in my research that you went with, especially with this focus on inequality that I mentioned, um, I one thing that came up again and again is that people who were, um, you know, who were led into the industry, but in sort of um, like more relatively disenfranchised positions in terms of they're less likely to get access to leadership roles, whether it's women or non-elite um, or racial and ethnic minority men, they would often say, well, I don't really have a right to complain because I make so much money. You know, it's not like I'm working at, um, you know, at Walmart um, and, and being disenfranchised like those workers. And so there was this relative 
kind of comparison about what they were entitled to complain about. Um, and I think this is part of how this, you know, this um, hedging in of people works and this kind of patrimonial system is like once you're let in, even if it's on tenuous terms, then you're really not supposed to qu- call into question. Um, and and I think that it raises a few, you know, to me, it raised a few questions and issues. So one, it's like, it made me question how much just changing the industry, the demographics itself, like, you know, the kind of classic diversity and inclusion initiatives that you hear about in, um, in other workplaces, whether they would actually undermine that sort of patrimonial foundation. So these, this, the fact that these firms are really organized around trust and loyalty and keeping people in and out, um, you have to, you know, you can't just change the demographics of the people, um, and then ha- and assume that that will change that system because it's so hardwired into what allows these hedge funds to exist and to have such um, power and privileges and, and resources. And so what I kind of came to the conclusion with, with this study was that to really make more radical changes, you have to think about the more, the bigger incentive structures in society. So the, the kind of systems that curb the power on these, these kind of parts of finance um, and the, the incomes they make, the taxes they pay, and how they impact workers. One of the things that's less known about hedge funds is that many of them operate very similarly to um, like private equity firms or leverage buyout where they actually influence the kind of decisions executives make. So they might set, serve on board positions and corporations and they apply the ideas that they apply to their own workplaces about what makes it lean, what they call lean and mean and efficient, which has to do with keeping things really understaffed um, outsourcing a lot of work, digitizing, um, you know, they promote a lot of um, global offshoring in the companies they work, they invest in. Um, so their, their ideology and sort of outlook on the world and how work works really shapes workers throughout society. And so, and I think it's important to know that lens because part of curbing the kind of the powers um, within this industry that allows them to hedge people in and out is also about thinking about how to better empower workers against the role of big finance in their workplaces, you know, how to make sure that they have the protections and, um, and bargaining power to make, to help in, um, counter this imbalance of power. So I think it's really a story about how to, you know, make it so that people in these elite areas of finance or other elite sectors of society, whether it's in corporations or in politics, but making sure that they aren't, over able to over exercise their um, interests without um, balancing those with the, the people that whose work they influ- who their work influences in society at large. Yeah, I, I think that's a really kind of clear um, idea of, of why the book is not just about hedge funds and not just about you know the kind of finance industry, but actually you know it, it, it's important reading for anyone who's interested in sort of you know various kind of. Um, elites, as you mentioned, you know, in politics or, or in the corporate world, um, in, in actually, I saw lots and lots of parallels with with stuff um, on media industries and, and and this kind of thing. But but also actually, why it's got this, you know, really kind of social Im- importance as well, and why there are lessons from from the book for you know kind of wider society. And and that prompted me really to to think about where you're going to go kind of next with the book. I mean, it, it's always a sort of um, quite kind of harsh question to ask an author. You know, you've done this incredible book. Um, it's you know full of this you know really fast, fantastic, rich field work. Um, but you know, 
isn't it about time you started another project? So are you thinking in terms of more work um, around kind of finance industry? Um, are you thinking, you know, about kind of um, broader set of work around inequalities or are you going to do something completely different? Yeah, I think the still um, on the theme of thinking about inequality and the where it happens in workplaces that really impact um, society in a, in a number of ways. So these, you know, the thing that really drives me in my research is making these connections between, you know, how are workplaces organized and structured and, um, and you know, what does that look like in terms of social inequality? And then what does that influence the work they do, <laughs> you know, then, um, and that sort of imprint on society. And so one project I've done, I've been working on some, um, some projects on tech and looking at like big tech um, firms and that kind of embrace some of the same ideas of hedge funds about, you know, trying to create this new model of work. Um, some of them were even, you know, some of these um, big tech giants, um, I don't study Amazon, but for example, um, Bezos started off in hedge funds. And so it influences how Amazon is structured and you can kind of see the same logics. Uh, I've also been doing research on tech startup founders and venture capitalists. And, and part of what piqued my interest in them is sort of as comparative cases, because they embrace really different ideologies um, in terms of inequality. So that it's all about disruption, about innovation, about um, inclusion. They're very into like, you know, changing the status quo um, and think that they're kind of at the you know, position themselves as at the forefront of doing that. And yet when you dig a little deeper, you notice there's the same trends in terms of who gets access to funding. If you found a startup, um, a tech startup, and who controls the money in venture capital is very similar to hedge funds, um, just incredibly unequal. And so that made me curious as to like, why do you have this very different culture that th sees itself as so different from hedge funds? Um, and yet you have similar outcomes. And why, what does that tell us about um, how these these um, belief systems are part of these systems of inequality. And, and it's also one of the interesting things about these cases is they have very different um, incentive structures in terms of the finance. So how they're compensated and also in, particularly in tech startups, how they often take a lack of compensation in exchange for equity. So it's again, like this risk-taking mentality in hedge funds, it's all about what you know, in personal risks you can take and how that's wrapped up in your work. Um, and you know, what I found with hedge funds is those who can do that kind of ideal worker risk taker, it's often because they have a safety net. That's this, these elite networks. Um, and I kind of argue that like whiteness and masculinity create the safety net. And I suspect that there's similar things happening, um, in, in the tech startup world as well. And another book on this maybe, um, or perhaps a series of papers or, um, is it just sort of too early to say? Yeah, you know, I initially did it as sort of like, well, maybe some papers to kind of compare these spheres. But then one interesting finding I've been coming across is how many people actually jump from sort of old school Wall Street and places like hedge funds into doing tech ventures um, and back and forth. And so I think there it could be a book process to sort of trace out how that happens, how people you know jump from how these elite networks that kind of extend from coast to coast in the U.S. Um, and different and provides then those sort of moves actually expose people to more um, sort of more varied sources of financing and opportunities and how that operates. So who knows? It might turn into a book project, but it's still early on. Too soon to say. 